You are listening to the Freedom Fellowship audio podcast from Freedom Fellowship Church in Tontytown, Arkansas. Our mission is to love God, love others, and serve both. And now let's listen in to this week's sermon. This is Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all, all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. The first three verses of chapter 8 could be an entire sermon in and of itself because there is so much to this that is applicable to each of us. But what I found interesting, and and if you missed Coach's sermon last week on Acts chapter 7, which was Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin, Coach did a beautiful job explaining why Stephen presented the way that he did to them. And I encourage you, if you missed last week's message, Download it on the podcast. You can go back and watch it on Facebook or YouTube. But what Stephen did was he gave a defense to the Sanhedrin saying, you guys, you and your fathers have always resisted God's plan. You resisted Moses, you resisted the prophets, and you rejected Christ. You resisted him. So Stephen does a really good job of defending that. But Paul or Saul, as we're going to call him, which, by the way, that's the first little giveaway. If you've ever wondered how Saul became Paul, how that transition happened, I encourage you to download the YouVersion Bible app. There's a little piece in there. There's a big misconception that Saul, his name was changed to Paul, but that's not the case. So download the YouVersion app. I encourage you to do that. But Saul is a trained Pharisee. And he was standing there watching Stephen defend himself Old Testament style. And he, look at verse number one, he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. This strict Pharisee, he was a child prodigy. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He knew the Old Testament inside and out up here. He knew it up here. Yet he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Saul neglected everything that Stephen had just said. Basically making the case like a a lawyer would present his case. That's what Stephen did. And Paul, Saul was like, "Hmm, no thanks, kill him. All of that was in his head. So we see a great wave of persecution began that day sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And I want to remind you, Jesus in Acts chapter 1 said, I want you to go out and be witnesses for me. Where? Jerusalem? Where else? We just read it. Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The church is starting to spread out like that growth in a good way. So in verse number three, it says, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. 
He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Now, some of your translations may say that Saul was wreaking havoc on the church. But the language here used in this particular verse is akin to a wild animal ravaging its prey. So think of a wild animal, like a bear. They're scary. Bears, when they get a, an animal, when they capture their prey, or like a lion or whatever, if you guys watch National Geographic, they are ravaging their prey. They are intently going after and eating and tearing apart and all of that. That same verb is used right here when it said that Paul was trying to, I keep calling him Paul, I should read the version notes, Saul is going after the church intently, just like a wild animal would go after its prey. If he was laser focused on crushing this group of people. I always like to ask the question, why? Why would he do this? We know that he didn't like the church. We know that he was an Old Testament purist through and through. But why would he do this? I'm glad you asked. Because there's three times in the book of Acts where Saul, Paul, recounts his conversion. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. And I want to read to you from Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11. This is from Paul's own mouth. Watch what he says. He says, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues, watch this, to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. That is Paul's motivation. Why was he doing that? He was given the green light. He was authorized by the leading priest to go and to squash this group of people known as the early church. Acts chapter 22, he says that he killed people. He murdered them. He murdered them. He beat people. He imprisoned them. He tortured them. And he forced them to blaspheme the name of their God. That's what Paul did. Such anger and rage in his heart to do something, what he thought was on the side of God, yet he was mistaken. What a burden to carry around, to kill somebody, to torture them, to force them to blaspheme, to beat them, to throw them into prison. That is quite the weight to carry. Now, for you and I, we don't carry around as much baggage as this guy. I mean, he killed people. I didn't. He forced people to blaspheme. I don't. But I've got my own baggage. Just like all of us have our own spiritual baggage. 
we carry these burdens around with us each and every day. Not to the same extent as Paul, but we carry stuff on our backs, on our consciences. We call that guilt. We do that. The thing I love about Scripture, the thing I love about God, is His willingness to love us enough to eliminate that. So you may be thinking, okay, what, what are you talking about? Even after all of this persecution of the church, murder, blasphemy, beatings, everything that you can think of, throwing people in prison, Paul had a clear conscience towards God. I want you to see this. I want to put it up on the screen. This is 2 Timothy 1.3. Says Timothy, I thank God for you. The God I serve with a clear conscience, just as my ancestors did, night and day, and constantly I remember you in my prayers. How in the world can you have a clear conscience because of all of this junk that you did back then? When you were persecuting the church, you were the enemy. How in the world can you have a clear conscience towards God? Paul understood God's grace and his forgiveness. Here's the kicker. So should we. So should we. God does not hold our past mistakes against us if we confess them to him in an act of true repentance. True heart repentance. It doesn't mean that we have a lax attitude towards sin or towards God, but to do it with true repentance in our hearts. Because the focus is not on our works, either good or bad. The focus should be on God. It is who God is and his love for us. Looking on paper, we would look and tally up all of Paul's sins. Be like, okay, this guy, there is no way God can forgive someone like that. Yet he did. Christ died the same for Paul, the murderer, as he did for me. Paul had that clear conscience towards God. He understood that God's grace was available to him and that love for him was there. Paul understood it and we should too. We don't ever deserve his grace and we never will. We don't deserve anything. What kind of love is that? That was the first point. I forgot to say this at the beginning. First point was the trans, trans here we go again. The transforming power of grace. Point number two is greatness in the face of uncertainty. So let's look at Acts chapter eight, starting in verse number four. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and to see the miraculous signs that he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. 
So there was great joy in that city. Now what we have happening here, it, it seems like it's, it's only confined to just a couple of verses, but we have the beginning of the dispersion, the diaspora of the Jews from Jerusalem going to surrounding places. The early church was beginning to spread. Now, were they running to something? No, they were running from something. A man named Saul and his band of goons going out persecuting the church. But you have the spreading of the believers. And what they were going out to do was to share the good news. Because they didn't quite know, the believers, the early church didn't quite know what was happening. They just knew that there was an oppressive force that was tearing their belief systems apart. You can put it this way, first century terrorism was what was happening. Saul was going around persecuting the church, striking fear into the heart of every believer. That's what he was doing. But look at verse number four. Look what they did. The believers who were scattered, what did they do? They preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. As Americans, we find joy in our comfort. When we go home at the end of the day, what do we do? We change into comfy clothes. I don't wear a tuxedo to bed. I don't know about you guys. I don't. We don't wear loafers or ladies' high heels to bed. Why? We like to be comfortable, right? We put on house shoes, things like that. We like comfort. But what do we do when our comfort is taken away? When the life that we know of here at Freedom Fellowship, gathering together every Sunday morning, if an oppressive force came in and caused us to scatter, what would we do? What would I do? I want you to ask yourself that. What would I do if I couldn't meet with everyone together here for whatever reason? What would I do? Some people would panic. Okay, that's a natural response to that. Someone said, well, I don't know. I guess I need to find a new group of people. Okay, but just think through that. What would I do if I couldn't gather with the believers here at Freedom Fellowship next Sunday? Would I go out to my place of work, to my neighbors, and begin to spread the good news about Jesus? Because that's what the first century church did. When they went to Samaria, that's what they did. They took that good news and began to tell everyone about Christ. Their world as we know it that level of comfort was gone. Their house in Jerusalem, gone. They just fled. But what did they do? They took that joy in their hearts. Again, we ask ourselves, would I do the same thing? But here we're introduced for the second time in Scripture to a man named Philip. Philip, if you recall, I don't have a slide for this. Back in Acts chapter 6, he was one of the seven men appointed to, to serve the church in Jerusalem. And his job was to oversee the daily dis distribution of food. That was his job. 
That was Philip the, the worker bee, full of the Holy Spirit, ready to serve the people, ready to serve the church, and he did that. For how long? We don't know. But here we see Philip the evangelist. Did he get someone to replace him there at the church in Jerusalem? We don't know. We just know that this is the same Philip who was faithfully serving the church in Jerusalem is now called to go out as an evangelist to go and share the good news about Christ. So what he did was when he got to Samaria is he preached the word and then the miracles followed the word. The emphasis was on the word, not the miracles. Now I want you to look, can we go to the next slide, Barbara? So that we can pull up verse number 12. Look at verse 12 right here. It says, but now the people believe Philip's message of the good news concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Now I want you to look at just a couple of key things in there. What was Philip preaching? What specifically was he preaching? Verse 12 tells us the kingdom of God. He was preaching Jesus Christ. Not only that, and John mentioned this earlier, it's the name of Jesus Christ in addition to the person of Jesus Christ. But he was also preaching repentance. How do we know that? Look at the end of verse 12. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Baptism is a part of evangelism. Preaching repentance. Now, baptism is not an essential doctrine. I know some people are going to shoot me when I say this. It is not essential to salvation. It is a result of. So what he was going out and doing, and we're going to see this. We see this in Samaria. But next week when Nate talks about Philip going out and preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch was, Ooh, there's, there's some water. Can we get baptized there? How did he know what baptism was unless Philip told him? It's not about the water. It's not about the act of baptism. It is the heart change that precedes it. That's what's important. Repentance comes first and then baptism. So getting back to this, Philip is going out and preaching repentance. Turn away from your sins and turn back to God. That's part of the message that he was going out there preaching. So what was the result of all of this? Can we go back one slide to verse number eight? It says that they're plain as day. So there was great joy in that city. Joy comes from salvation. Repentance towards their old life and a new life in Christ. We will see more of this as we continue through Acts. And I want to give you just a taste of this. I don't have a slide for it. But Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to Ephesus. And I want you to see, Paul was preaching Christ. He was not preaching hellfire and brimstone. He wasn't preaching, you know, a soft gospel. He was preaching the true gospel. And watch the result of this. This is Acts 19 verse 18. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery 
brought in their incantation books and burned them in a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. That's what we're going to see in Acts chapter 19. But again, I'm getting to the point. The heart change is what truly matters. When you repent of, I can't believe that I used to do that. I'm going to turn away from that and turn back to God. When something like that happens, when the Holy Spirit goes to work, it is like an explosion and you cannot continue in your old life because the Holy Spirit is beginning that cleansing process. Here in Acts chapter 19, what did people do? People who are into black magic and sorcery and things like that, they're like, mm, take this book of magic spells and throw it on the fire. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. That is the power of Christ in our lives. When we turn and repent and we begin to see that fruit, that's the kind of change that we see in our lives. There is a noticeable change when true repentance happens. So our first point today was the transforming power of grace. Our second point was greatness in the face of uncertainty. And our third point today is a picture of a false convert. Let's pick this up in verse number nine. This is Acts 8, verse 9. It says, A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believe Philip's message of the good news concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began follow, following Philip wherever he went. He was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip had performed. So here we're introduced to Simon the sorcerer. He was one of those people that we just referenced in Acts chapter uh, 19. He was a sorcerer. He was into magic, the dark arts. It was deception fueled by Satan. Anyone who practices sorcery, that power is not in the Lord. That power is in Satan. So here we have Simon, and it, it talks about that he had a great life. He was going around. He had large crowds following him. They even said, you're the great one. You possess the power of God. He's like, mm, I ain't going to correct you, but that was kind of his attitude. So here we have this guy, very influential because people followed him. He had influence over people. But what happens? People begin to follow, not Philip. They begin to follow the Lord. As a result, they are listening to Philip. Simon was no longer, quote, the great one with the power of God to these people. But it says, uh, where's that? Verse 13, here's the kicker. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. 
He only believed on a surface level. And he was baptized, but not for the right reasons. Now, this is going to be important. I want to jump down to verse number 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given, when the apostles laid their hands on people, let me pause real quick. That's the second U version little nugget, bonus nugget, that you can find in there. We know that at salvation, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, right? Everybody agree, Ephesians 1, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Here in Samaria, that did not happen. Why did that not happen? It was two separate events. Why? Check your U version. We've got a note in there as to why. But what happened is Philip is out there preaching, and then Peter and John come from Jerusalem. They come down there. They haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. They did. And here's where it picks up, verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given, when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you your evil thoughts. For I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things that you've said won't happen to me. So I asked this question, was he converted? Verse 13 says that he believed and he was baptized. On the outside, yes, he said the right things. He got water baptized. But he was never fully repentant. He believed based on something other than the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He was never fully repentant. He just wanted the benefits. Again, this is a magician by trade, presumably pulling rabbits out of hats, whatever. I don't know. I wasn't there. But he practiced deception. So when he sees this true authentic power, he's like, okay, here's my wallet. How much to get that gift? But when he was never fully repentant, he just wanted the benefits. And since I am on a soapbox right now, this sounds eerily familiar to the prosperity message that is preached in a lot of churches today. We want the material blessings only of God. We don't want to hear about self-denial and submission. We only want to hear about the, the benefits, but not repentance or sin because that might make me uncomfortable. We want the reward without putting in the work. We want God to do things for us without us truly seeking him. In other words, I'm perfect in my own eyes. I just need the God, God to make me just a little bit better. That is a very popular message in churches today, very popular. Never being fully repentant 
but wanting the benefits of God. So what we have is Simon the sorcerer. He was a phony conversion. His conversion was not real. It was not true. He wanted to sell this power for profit. And Peter said in verse 20, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. Now that's what Peter said. But I also want to point out Verse 21, your heart is not right with God. Your heart is not right with God. That's one thing. Verse 22, repent of your wickedness, which means he did not repent of his wickedness prior to that. Verse 23, I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Peter knew this. He knew the sky was a phony he just wanted the benefits, but not the part about true repentance and self-denial. You are full of bitter jealousy and you are held captive by sin. There's an old saying, if you want to get someone's attention, you start talking about their pocketbook. When you start talking about taking money away from people, you're going to get their attention really quick. This is not the last time that we're going to see this happened in Acts. Let me kind of spoil the surprise. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas go and they cast the demon out of the slave girl with the spirit of divination. The guys that owned her were like, whoa, hey, Charlie, you just took money out of my pocket. That's my income. What do you think you're doing? So they beat him and threw him in prison. Acts chapter 19, Paul disrupts the business of the silversmiths. They made little statues of Diana or Artemis. They would sell those. Here comes Paul preaching Christ, and people are like, I don't want that. I'm not buying that. The silversmiths are pockets turned inside out. Where's my money? You're taking money out of my bank account because you're preaching Christ. Same thing happened with Simon the sorcerer. Peter called him out and put him out of business. The wicked profit from ungodly things. But the gospel has the power to reach people and make them give that up voluntarily. That's the power of the gospel. So I want to recap real quick. What can we learn from today's lesson? Number one, Saul showed us that even the most detestable of us can be counted worthy by God. To be transformed spiritually, but also to have a clear conscience towards God. The second point God can use all situations for his good. Talking about the dispersion of the early church, things in the natural looked very bleak and hopeless, but God used that for his good. He spread his message of the gospel to the people of Samaria. And number three, false converts exist. They may look holy or John said Christianese earlier. They may say all the right things on the surface, but deep down they are not truly redeemed. They may remain entangled in the grip of the enemy. Those people are deceived. Now, you see a lot of people falling away from the faith. Dylan, you know what I'm talking about. We've talked about this. 
including very famous worship songwriters for massive ministries, saying, you know what? I don't believe in Christianity anymore. These are people who wrote songs about worshiping the Lord. How in the world can that happen? I don't know. I don't know that person's specific story. Are they like Simon? Have they truly repented towards God? I don't know. But I will say this. If you don't get anything else from today, get this right here. It is never our job to question someone's salvation. It is never our job to question their salvation, in order, meaning to be suspicious of it. You say, eh, Eric, you say you're saved, but mm, I don't know. That's not our job. That's the Holy Spirit's job to do that. Now, we can ask someone, are you born again? Absolutely. We are able to do that. But Jesus said, you will know them by their what? Their fruit. Fruits. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict people, not ours. It is our job to preach and proclaim Christ, the good news that he came to save people and redeem us back into the Father. That is our job. The same way it spread in the early church in Acts, we should not go out to try to make converts. We should go out and just proclaim Christ because that is what it is all about. And it says it right there. God's blueprint for his church as Freedom Fellowship in 2022, we are not trying to reinvent the wheel. We look to the book of Acts. What was their blueprint? What was their game plan? And that's what we do. We proclaim Christ. We rely on the Holy Spirit to be the engine of this ministry. It's not my intellect. It's not Tom Smarts or Eric's, you know, whatever. It's none of that. It is the Holy Spirit who is the engine that is driving this ministry. Thank you so much for listening to the Freedom Fellowship audio podcast. We are located at 990 West Henry de Tonti Boulevard in Tontytown, Arkansas. You can check us out on the web at freedomfellowship.com or you can find us on social media by searching Freedom Fellowship NWA. We hope you have a great week and that you live out the mission of the church, which is to love God, love others, and serve both.